0: But through his life and through his ministry, through his preaching and all that he did, Jesus was dismantling the religious system as he spoke about God and as he proved that God was with him by the miracles that he did. And he proved that God loved his people and that all the laws and all the religious ritual and all the weight that was imposed upon the people was not God's intent. So Pilate knew that. But the problem for Pilate is that, of course, he's a politician. And so he's not just concerned with the fate of this innocent man. He's not really that concerned even with truth or justice. He is worried about keeping peace. He's worried about the fact that if there's another uprising, if there's another skirmish going on, the word might get back to his superiors, and he may even lose his own position. So he's got some things to protect as well. So what Paulette does is he comes up with a plan. He decides he's going to conduct a poll. And in that poll, he's going to give the people the option as to which person they want to release, and, of course, in doing that, he is able to make it their decision. And so it's kind of a win-win for him. And as the Scripture says, every year during Passover, that Pilate, who was a representation of Roman power, of the Roman oppressors, uh, Pilate would want to ingratiate himself with the people. He would want to kind of come off as a nice guy and kind of, you know, placate people who were anti-Rome. So for Passover, he would bring out a couple criminals each year and allow the people to choose which one they want to go free. He'd be a Jewish prisoner, someone probably just who'd committed some kind of petty crime, nothing too serious, uh, but just somebody he could let go, and it wouldn't be a real threat to the Roman Empire or to, to civilians. That's what he would normally do. But this time, he has this prophet. In fact, I don't know if Pilate was aware or not. He may have been. He was an intelligent man. But if Jesus was actually living in a sovereign nation at that time of Israel, if you know your Bibles, you know that Jesus was actually the literal king of Israel. You follow the, the, the line of David, King David, and it is intentional that Jesus was born into that family. So he came as the Savior, but he also came as the legitimate king on the throne of Israel in that day. Pilate may or may not have known this, but we do know there seems to be a sense that Pilate understands that this is not an ordinary man. Uh, he, whether he's a prophet, a good teacher, he may have heard some of the reports of miracles and things that Jesus had done, but he knows that this man is somebody of substance, somebody of importance, and so that's why I believe he agrees to uh, the Pharisees and the chief priests and the religious leaders to their request when they wanted a man named Jesus Barabbas to be, to be uh, matched up with Jesus as far as giving the people a choice as to who, set, who to set free. Because this Jesus Barabbas was a notorious criminal. Uh, he was somebody who was uh, involved in insurrection and different crimes against, against Rome. And so obviously it's somebody that the Romans would not want to let free. But in light of who this Jesus is, they decide, he decides rather, he'll let the people choose between Barabbas and Jesus. He asks the crowd, the scripture says, who do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? Now that may have sounded a little surprising to some of you this morning if you're not familiar with the fact that several manuscripts support the fact that this man's name was actually Jesus Barabbas. His first name is left out of many manuscripts because of the feeling by many that, well, that's kind of irreverent to Jesus the Christ. Here is this Barabbas who has the same name, but he's a vile man, he's a criminal, he's, a, he's an insurrectionist, he's a murderer. We can't associate his name with Jesus. But what's ironic about that is that's exactly why God set this whole thing up this way. There are actually a few Bible translations, the modern NIV, the New English translation that include the name Jesus Barabbas. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense for Pilate to say, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? That wouldn't make sense. The actual question that Pilate poses is this, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? Pilate is asking, which Jesus do you want to go free? Now, for the religious leaders, the choice is easy. They want Jesus Barabbas, not only because they want to get rid of Jesus but barabbas as i mentioned was a man who was in prison for insurrection against rome he was imprisoned as probably having murdered a roman soldier so in the eyes of the jewish population that day for many that actually made barabbas a kind of folk hero in fact coincidentally he was what the people were looking for in a savior he was someone who was going to physically overthrow the roman empire and that's why he was arrested that's why he's sentenced to death that's why he's awaiting execution But then you have Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, who actually is the true Savior. But the difference with Jesus the Christ is he didn't come just to overthrow a human empire. He didn't come to overthrow the Romans so that your Jewish people could just go on living lives as they please, living free, and the religious leaders and politicians could all keep their position of power. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus came to overthrow the darkness in human hearts. He came to destroy the works of the devil, who manifests himself in all these things that lead to the bondage of God's people, their disobedience, their adultery, all the things that lead them far from God. Jesus came to address the heart of the issue, what really was needed in order for the kingdom of God to be established, the kingdom of peace and of righteousness. But because he didn't do it by force, it was believed that Jesus had let the people down. And you know, you and I face the same decision. We have to ask ourselves, which Jesus do we really want in our lives? Which Jesus are we really rooting for? Do we want a Jesus who will just come close enough to our lives that he will take care of my problems? Maybe once in a while I call out to him, God help me, or Jesus help me. If you get me out of this mess, I promise I will serve you. We just kind of keep him in our back pocket because we just want him to come close enough that he can take care of the issues or problems that rise up that somehow maybe encroach upon my plans. That's one Jesus. Or do I want the real Jesus? Do I want the Jesus who wants to come into the kingdom of my heart, who wants to change my heart, who wants to free me from the darkness, who wants to free me from my selfishness, from my lovelessness, from my judgmentalism, whatever it may be, he wants to free me because he understands that if he can change me, he'll begin to change the kingdom around me. He'll begin to change lives around me. But if he's just there for what I can get out of him, nothing's going to change in my heart. And so Pilate asked the crowd, who do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? And then I'm sure he must have kind of stood back and been quite pleased with himself at this wonderful plan that he had, this plot that he had that convinced that everything was going to work out. Now, he knows the religious leaders, they're still going to choose Jesus of Nazareth because they want him dead. But there's a big crowd there, and he's going to go with the majority, and he's convinced that there's no way that the average person in that crowd is going to want an innocent man punished. They are not going to choose this Barabbas, who is a murderer, an insurrectionist, a rebel rouser, a troublemaker, They're not going to want him back in their streets. They're not going to want him in public again around their children. They they want this guy locked up. That's what Pilate is thinking. He's thinking, I'll be able to turn Jesus loose, execute this murderer, and the mob will go home. But you read the story, things don't go that way. The religious leaders, he can see, are starting to move through the crowd. He can see them speaking. He can see them gesturing. And before he knows it, he starts to hear a murmuring and people start to say, Jesus, Barabbas. Jesus, Barabbas. Give us Jesus, Barabbas. And his plan begins to backfire. The Bible tells us that he has to release Barabbas. And then he asks, well, what will I do with this Jesus of Nazareth, your prophet, your king? What will I do with him? And to his amazement, they begin to say, crucify him. Louder and louder, crucify him, crucify him. And so they take Jesus instead of Barabbas. They chain him to a whipping post where he's beat with an inch of his life. Then they put Barabbas' cross on Jesus. And I don't think it's a stretch to say it was Barabbas' cross because we find out when Jesus was crucified, he was actually placed between two other criminals, just like Barabbas. These might have been guys who worked with Barabbas. We don't know, but we do know that Jesus went to the cross as his substitute. And when Jesus went to the cross, Barabbas slinked away into the crowd and he went free. You know, when you read the biblical accounts of Jesus and Barabbas in the four Gospels, there's actually no real clear indication that Barabbas physically shared the same platform as Jesus At the same time, we see that depicted in the movies. But you don't necessarily get that image from the scripture itself sometimes. It's quite possible, as some suggest, that while this whole ordeal was going on, that Barabbas was actually physically still in prison. And the prison in that day would have been about 2,000 feet away, about half a kilometer down the street. What that means is that if Barabbas was in chains in his prison cell, he would not have been able to hear Pilate but he would have heard the crowd. And so as the trial is going on, all of a sudden he just hears, not even aware probably there is a trial going on, he just hears his name, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. And it gets his attention. It stirs him in the cell. Something's going on, Barabbas. They're talking about me. But that's the crowd saying they want Barabbas. He doesn't know that. He just hears his name, Barabbas, Barabbas. And then Pilate speaks again, which, of course, he can't hear. And Pilate says, what shall I do with Jesus? Barabbas doesn't hear that. All he hears is, crucify him, crucify him. You see what's going on? Barabbas is in prison. Barabbas is in chains. He hears the anger of the mob. Barabbas, Barabbas, followed by crucify him, crucify him. It's very possible that day Barabbas might have been in that cell expecting that he is about to be crucified. Can you imagine, can you imagine just how his stomach must have been churning? The panic, the fear that gripped him knowing that he is about to die. And he hears the soldiers coming down the stone corridor. He hears the keys rattling. They stop at his cell and he's fully expecting to be crucified, and he has seen crucifixion. He knows what is waiting, him. he must be terrified. But can you imagine the shock when the guards say, you're free to go. Somebody else is taking your place. Either way, whichever way this actually played out that day, we don't have any record of Barabbas actually thanking Jesus, which is quite amazing, because when you think of it, when Jesus was on the cross, crucified between two thieves, one of the thieves actually reached out to him and placed faith in him that he really is who he said he was. He is the Son of God. And he said, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. He reached out to him. But we don't have any record of Barabbas in any way trying to communicate with Jesus, in any way saying, Jesus, thank you for what you have done. I can't believe that you've given your life for me. I owe you everything. We don't have that record. We don't even have a record that he made good with the second chance. For all we know, he may have gone back to his old ways. You know, I can remember as a child growing up in church, every Good Friday service, whether it was a scripture being read or the preacher preaching on it, whatever, I can always remember this, just this sense of anger at the injustice of what was going on that day. I can remember just being so angry at Judas. How could Judas live those years with Jesus and all that he saw and the way that Jesus loved him and washed his feet right to the very end, and yet he would betray him? And then you'd go to the mock trial. I'd be so upset at the religious priests. This whole thing was a scam. It was a kangaroo court. Jesus was completely innocent. And yet here they were crucifying this man whom they knew was from God. I was angry at Pilate for not having the courage to do the right thing. I was angry at Barabbas for not only the kind of man that he was, but that he would actually just walk away free and Jesus would take all of his punishment And he didn't even seem to be grateful. And I was angry at the mob for demanding that Jesus be crucified. You know what I've discovered as I'm an adult and even recently as I read through this story again? That as the crowd is shouting, Barabbas, 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 there's actually another voice in the crowd that's not documented but is still there. The crowd is saying, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. But there's also a voice And it's the voice of God. And God is saying, give me Barabbas. Give me Barabbas. Take Jesus. I want Barabbas to go free. I want Barabbas to have a second chance. You see, Barabbas is not actually a name. Just like Christ is not a name, it's a title. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Barabbas was a compound word made up of the word bar, which means son. And the second part is abbas, or abbas, which means father. And so Jesus Barabbas actually means Jesus, son of the father. That's who he is. And isn't that ironic? You'd almost think if it was coincidental, but we know it's not. It's intentional. What is God saying? He's given a choice, and he's also revealing something that he's going to do. First of all, he's saying, I set before you a choice. Here is Jesus the only Son of God, and Jesus, the Son of the Father. Jesus, the prodigal son. Jesus, the one who's walked away from God, who is everything that God never intended him to be, a waste of a life. Here are the two. You choose which one you want. And yet in that choice, God is also saying this. He's saying, I love my son, Jesus, My only son, my lone son, Jesus, I love him. But I also love my lost son. And I want him to come home. I want him to be forgiven. I want him to be free. I want him to have another chance. So I will give my son to die in his place to give him that chance. The Bible says in Corinthians, God caused Christ who himself knew nothing of sin, to actually be sin for our sakes so that in Christ we might be made good with the goodness of God. You see, Jesus stood that day without saying a single word before Pilate, before the crowd, because Jesus knew that God would have to treat Jesus like Barabbas so that he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. That was the heart of God. Barabbas thought it was the people that set him free, but it wasn't. It was the love of the Heavenly Father. Even though he's undeserving, he's ungrateful, he's unrepentant, God still loves him. And that's why when I read this story, the more I read it, the less angry I get with Barabbas. Because I realize who Barabbas is. Right? Barabbas is me. Barabbas is you. And I hear God say, I love Barabbas. But God, how can you love him? He's so evil. He's so ungrateful. He's unrepentant. I know he is, but I love him. And I want him to go free. I don't want him to have to pay for his crime. The Bible says in Romans 5 that someone might dare die for a good person. But God has shown us how much he loves us. It was while we were still sinners that Jesus the Christ died for us. God's justice demands full payment for sin, which is death. We understand that in our own legal system, there are certain punishments for certain crimes, and there was a time you committed murder that you paid with your own life. And whether you agree with that or not, that was the principle was for the punishment to fit the crime. And so God does the same in the universe. Our sin is so grave. Our sin of rebellion against him, the sin that we're born with because of Adam's sin, is so grave that the only way we can satisfy the legal requirements of God that are perfectly just is if we pay with the blood of our own lives. But in his mercy, the Bible says, God provided a substitute for you and me, just like he did for Barabbas. And like Barabbas, God knew that I was undeserving, I was ungrateful, I was unrepentant, But he also knew that I was in prison. He knew that I was in chains. He knew there was nothing I could do to save myself. I was absolutely without hope. And so whether you care or not, whether you do anything about it or not, it was for you that Jesus died. It was you standing under the sentence of death and with no hope until a voice came. Not from the crowd, but came from heaven and said, give me Barabbas. You can insert your name there. God said, give me him. Give me her. You say, but but God, that means that if, if Jesus takes my sin, then Jesus has to take my punishment with it. But I deserve it. I deserve the mess that I got myself into. I deserve the pain. I deserve the chains that I have created. And Jesus says, I know you did, but I want you to give it to me anyway. The Bible says that when you do that, he takes all of your sin and he nails it to the cross so that you can go free. But here's the key. It's not so you can go free and just go back to your old ways. It's not so you can just get rid of the immediate problem and go on and live your life and then get yourself back into the same problem. You see, Jesus doesn't consolidate your debt so you can go and spend more and get in bondage again. That's not how it works. In fact, I think one of the fallacies in Christendom today, though I understand what we mean, and I've said it myself, but one of the misunderstandings we have is thinking that somehow we invite Jesus into our life. Jesus doesn't want to come into your life. Your life's a mess. Your life's a wreck. Your life is in bondage your life is broken. If I can be so blunt, your life is boring. He doesn't want to come into your life. He invites you into his life. That's the difference. If any man be in Christ, if any woman be in Christ, they're a brand new creation. The old has passed away. Everything is brand new. Jesus calls us to walk out of the tomb of our life and to enter into his life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone believes in me, though he or she were dead, they shall live. But they must believe in me. They must live in me. I've not come just for you to say a sinner's prayer to make you feel good and to think everything is taken care of in heaven and just go on yourself, and I'm here if you need me. No, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. You can go through that if you want, but it doesn't mean you're mine. You know if you're mine. Like we said last week, You know whether or not you know God because to know God is to know God. And in the same way, to be a Christian is to be in Christ. And that's what the Lord invites us into. And when we do that, the Bible says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. His love that is so rich, so great. And he says because of that love, regardless of what anybody says about you, regardless of what you might even think about yourself, he says, I choose you. And I gave up my son for you. I wondered this morning how your life would change if you really believed that. If you really believed how much God loves you. If you really believed what God did in order for you to be his child. How would it change you if you realized that you don't have to earn God's love anymore? You don't have to earn His acceptance. Everything Jesus did, He did to earn that for you. You only have to receive it. But having received it, you have to begin to live in the new life that He has purchased for you. The Bible says in Romans 5, verse 10, We were God's enemies, but He made us His friends through the death of His Son. And now that we are God's friends, how much more Will we be saved, ongoingly delivered, ongoingly move into this new life? How much more if we do that by the life of Christ that we now live? I want to talk to you for a minute if you're a Christian. Because oftentimes what happens to us as Christians is we get ourselves into a mess. We sin or we drift from God, whatever it may be. And because we understand what Jesus has done for us, what he paid for us, all how faithful he's been to us over the years. That whenever we find ourselves in that place that maybe we drift away, maybe we've committed a sin, maybe we've made a mess of something, our life, our marriage, our finances, whatever it may be, there's a little voice that comes to us and says, you ought to know better. And because you ought to know better, and because you know what Jesus did for you on the cross, then you better understand that if you've made your bed, now it's up to you to lie in it. If you've made this mess, it's up to you to get yourself out of this mess. Can I encourage you this morning, if you're thinking that way, just to stop it? Because the reality is, even as a Christian, you won't get yourself out. Whatever it is that ensnares you again, you are not strong enough in yourself to break the hold of those chains. And if you continue down that road, If you continue thinking, I've asked too much, I've I've gone to the Lord too many times, I've, I've slipped away too many times, I've been dry too many times, this particular area of my life is a mess, if you think you can't go to the Lord, as sincere as you may be, I promise you, you are just going to end up being another statistic, that's all you're going to be. You're going to be a wasted life. In your own strength and determination, it's not enough to save you. It's not enough to save your marriage or your family or finances, anything else. There's only one person that can save you. It's the same Jesus you trusted in maybe a long time ago. He's the only one that can get you out of what you've gotten yourself into. And he's the one who always stands beside you, like we shared last week, with you and your accuser standing there. Jesus would remind you, I have taken your punishment so that you can go free. I have taken your punishment so that you may live in me, and living in me you have power to overcome the one who is against you. But you've got to trust me again. You've got to turn to me. You've got to believe me. But What we do in our human nature, and sometimes we think this is spiritual, we say, no, Jesus. I've, just, I've done it too many times. I'm, here I am again. Just, just give me those chains back. Give me those chains back. Put me back in the prison cell. Because whatever it is I'm going through right now, whatever I'm feeling or not feeling, bottom line is I deserve this. I deserve the guilt. I deserve the consequences. I deserve the condemnation. I deserve the divorce. I deserve the poverty. I deserve the sickness. I deserve the regret. I deserve it all. And Jesus says, whether you deserve it or not is not the issue. The issue is that you have no power to overcome it yourself. You have a choice. You can give it to me because I'm big enough. I'm strong enough. I'm holy enough that I can absorb whatever it is that you will give to me. I can absorb it so that you can be forgiven and you can go free. I'm stronger than your guilt, and I'm stronger than your sin. It has no power over me, but you have no strength against it without it. And friends, that's all we've got. There's nowhere else to go. And why would we want to go anywhere else than to a God whose love for us is so incredibly deep and wide and vast and strong a God who is so forgiving and who is so welcoming? What other God is there in any world religion today who would say to you, let me have your sin and come and live in the freedom for which I have made you free? You know what? When you do that, you find yourself living in a new place of freedom and a new place of acceptance. I want to close with this last scripture from Galatians chapter 4. When you let Jesus have your sin, the Bible says you become a child of God. And Paul writes these words, since you are God's children, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts and the spirit cries out, Abba, Father. Now that may not be sinking in right now, but just think about it for a second. The Heavenly Father sends into you the Spirit of His Son. Who's His Son? Jesus Christ, right? And the Spirit of Jesus Christ in you enables you to cry out, Abba, Abba Father. You see what was happening that day? God deliberately orchestrated this thing that the people were given a choice. The people were given a prophetic image of what was going on. Here you have my son, who has lived without sin. No one can bring a charge against him. The only charge they can bring against him was that he said he was going to die and he was going to rise again three days later. That's the only charge they could bring against him. No sin. Here's my son. But in Barabbas, here's you. Here's you. Jesus Barabbas. Son of Of the Father. We are all the sons or daughters of somebody, aren't we? We matter to somebody. Somebody cares about us. And you know what? We matter to God as well. And that's why He looks at us and He says, I gladly have given my son in order that I might rescue you, who was once my son, once my daughter. But just as you see in the image of this man, Barabbas, this criminal, this broken human being. This one that everybody has written off. That's who you were. That's who you are without me. But I gladly give my son in order that you might go free. Not just to go back to your old ways. But that you might receive my son. That he might come and live within you. That you might be restored to everything. That's what salvation is about. He has purchased us. Through the death of jesus christ he has redeemed us the bible says he has bought us back at a price why because we are the prodigals we are the ones made in his image who went our own way and got ourselves into prisons and into chains that we can't get out of but he says if you receive my son jesus he will pay as your substitute for your sin I will place your sin upon Him so that I can forgive you. But it doesn't stop there. I don't only to forgive you, but now I send the Spirit of my Son who paid for your price, who rose from the dead. He will come now live within you and He will witness to you that you are a child of God. You have been redeemed. You have been purchased. You have been bought as a price. That's why the Scripture says, now go and glorify God with your life. Abba Father. We're going to close with a song, and as we do, I want to give you opportunity this morning if you're here and you don't know Christ. We're not going to prolong the service. You know who you are. You know whether or not you know the Lord. And if you don't, but this morning your heart is longing to say, oh, I want that spirit that would cry out, I want to know God. I know I'm far from him. I understand the change you're talking about. If that's your heart's desire, we're going to have people standing here at the altar And as we close, we invite you to come. They just want to take a few moments just to meet you and to pray with you. But also, if you're a believer here this morning and you want to receive prayer, for whatever it may be, you come. But if there's anything at all in the way of chains, anything in the way of condemnation, sickness, whatever it may be, I invite you to come. I invite you to come this morning and just allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you just to bring freedom, to bring healing, to bring wholeness, whatever it may be. Everything Jesus did was that we might be set free, but that we might also live in freedom. And having been set free and living in freedom, what do we do? We minister that same freedom. Freely have received, now go everywhere and freely give. I believe one of the reasons why there's so little personal evangelism in the body of Christ today is that there's so little freedom in people's hearts. There are so few believers today who really live in the fullness of the Holy Spirit who really live in the joy of the presence of the Lord, who really know what it is to be a child of God, who really realize how much you've been set free, how much you've been forgiven, because when you really understand, you want to talk about it. You want to share it. You want to minister. You may just want to come this morning and say, would you pray with me? I just feel like I just haven't been missional for years. I want to begin to share Christ with people. I want to be set free. I want to be filled with the love of God. Well, our story begins with a man in a cave, sentenced to die. His name is Barabbas. Jesus takes his place. Barabbas goes free. Our story ends with Jesus, the Christ, in a cave, dead. Like the old black preacher said many, many years ago, it's Friday, but Sunday's the coming. Amen? Sunday's coming. We're going to be telling that story next week. We invite you to join us next Sunday. God bless you. Would you stand with me? I'm going to ask the ministry team to come. And as they sing, as they play, ministry team, would you come? They're going to stand at the altar here. And if you have any need in your life, the things we've shared this morning in your body, whatever it may be, I invite you to come. We want to pray with you. The Lord is here by His Spirit to set you free. If you need to slip out, God bless you. Just do so quietly if you would as ministry and worship has taken place. Have a wonderful day in the Lord. We trust we'll see you next week. Invite a friend. If you want to join us Good Friday, make sure you stop at the, at the table and pick up a ticket It's your last chance uh, for that movie. Bring a friend as well. But God bless you. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for your people. I thank you for everyone here. I thank you, O oh God, that we are your sons and daughters. But we want to be, Lord, alive to you. We don't want to be wayward. We don't want to be drifting. We don't want to be far from you. We thank you who paid the price, O oh God, through your son Jesus, that we might truly have that witness in our hearts by the Spirit of God that we are sons and daughters of God. I pray not one person would leave this place this morning without knowing they can lift their voice and say with confidence, I am a child of God. I've received the gift of God through Christ, and I have been brought back. I am his child. Lord, by your Spirit, may your grace just flow as we minister now in your name. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. Would you come if you want to receive prayer?